Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford, an elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, in Chicago, wrote the words of this hymn in 1873. Two years prior, in 1871, after a long dry summer, a raging fire destroyed over 2,000 acres of the city of Chicago. Spafford, a lawyer, suffered extensive damage to the properties he had invested in in the city. Two years later, Spafford sought to bring his family to England for a vacation, where his good friend Dwight L. Moody would be preaching. He sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him on the steamship, the SS Ville du Havre, as he was delayed with property zoning issues that had been a result of the Great Fire. A week after departing from New York, the Du Havre collided with an iron clipper, the Loch Urn, at 2 a.m. on the morning of November 22nd. The Du Havre was split in two and began to sink. Despite efforts by the crew of the Loch Urn, saving 87 passengers and crew, 12 minutes after the collision, the Du Havre sank, and 226 men, women, and children perished, including Spafford's four daughters. His wife, Anna, survived, and upon landing in Britain, sent word to her husband by a telegraph saying, saved alone, what shall I do? On his trip across the Atlantic to meet his wife and to bring her home, Spafford crossed the very spot where his daughters were lost. It would, was on this trip that he would pen the beloved words that I've just said, it is well, it is well with my soul. So what enabled Horatio Spafford to write these words in response to his loss? How could a man suffering such severe tragedy create lyrics describing his peace despite trials and sorrows? Surely his temptation would have been to rage against God, to doubt the Lord's mercy and goodness, and to ask the question, why? Modern commentators might describe his suffering as a result of karma, him receiving what he deserved for previous sins in his life. Others nowadays might look at this tragedy and say it was the result of chance, an unfortunate coincidence, a random event on the cosmic scale, nothing more. As we approach the dawn of a new year, there are many in our church, many of us and many we know, who are enduring hardships, sickness, and loss, and many of us who are expecting the challenges we face in the coming year to be more difficult than any we have faced before. As we look forward into the new year, we should also recognize that our situation is by no means unique in church history. The first century church in Rome, to which the Apostle Paul wrote his beloved letter from which the text we'll be looking at today was taken, was a church enduring similar struggles. The Apostle Paul has shown great concern throughout his letter for the sufferings he expects the Roman believers to experience, addressing their sufferings twice already in the first eight chapters. Paul encourages the Roman believers, and indeed us today, that as we look forward to living life with the Holy Spirit and eventually receiving a glorious inheritance with Christ, the resurrection of our bodies, we should expect to endure suffering and trials while we wait for God to redeem creation. But how does Paul and how does scripture expect us to continue through suffering and through trials 
when our outlook can be so bleak. This morning, I would like to contrast the suffering that Paul shows concern for earlier in his letter to the Romans with a specific knowledge, an assurance, as Spafford would say, that Paul writes about in the eighth chapter of Romans. Paul is instructing us in three things. First, what we know. Second, why we know it. And third, how we are to live in that knowledge. Paul's main thesis, his main point for us as believers, is that we are to know, to have certain knowledge of this wonderful truth, that because God has, by his own sovereign power, saved us without any effort on our part, he will also, by his own sovereign power, actively work all things, all the pleasant circumstances in our lives, and all the difficult and painful things we endure for our good. Now, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here and start, actually, with my second point, why we know this amazing claim is true. Paul's audience in this letter is Christians, believers, those people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for their sins, their justification before holy God, and the resurrection of their bodies. In fact, in the preceding eight chapters of this letter, Paul has essentially been building argument upon argument that justification is by faith in Jesus Christ, and in him alone is the hope of salvation for believers. Paul addresses believers here both as those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. I think it is important for us to realize that the first term, those who love God, is not a prescriptive qualification. That is to say, we as believers do not have to strive to, to meet or to love God with so much vigor that his promises will apply to us. This would be a form of works righteousness. Rather, Paul is saying that this is the promise for all believers, for those for whom the fruit of the spirits in their hearts is a love for God, something that is totally foreign for, to an unbeliever. This is echoed in 1 John 4, 19, as Trevor already said this morning. We love because he first loved us. Paul also describes believers as those who are called according to his purpose. I would mention two things about this description. First, this parallels his earlier description. Paul is saying that those who love God are those who have been called according to his purpose. Secondly, that when Paul calls someone, or that when God, excuse me, calls someone upon whom he has placed his love, it is an effectual call. That is to say, God's call is not in vain. I remember when I was a child, my mother would call me up from the basement where I would be playing. On one particular occasion, she had to call several times before I finally decided to come up. Her patience being worn somewhat thin, I justified my tardiness, saying, but mom, I only heard you the third time. Now all credit to my mother, but her call is not like God's call. When God calls someone, he actualizes their response to that call. He brings their response to reality. He ensures that his call is effective. This begs the question as to what being called by God actually means and how his call is effectual. To answer this, I would like to look at the purpose to which he has called believers, which Paul outlines here in verses 29 and 30. And to help us navigate these two theologically dense 
verses, I would like to draw your attention to five distinguishing markers that Paul places throughout these verses, namely foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and finally, glorification. These five markers are verbs that chain together the argument that Paul is building. That being said, we see that Paul here begins to to link together these five markers that describe believers and how believers are redeemed by God, starting first with foreknowledge. Paul describes believers as those whom God foreknew. In the simplest of terms, the word foreknew could easily be translated as to know beforehand. This basic interpretation would reflect something very similar to our human ability to receive knowledge, as in when we read or watch the news and passively receive knowledge of current world affairs. But as it is used in the Bible, the word foreknew is one that is just dripping with meaning. Throughout scripture, the verb to know is not a passive verb, but an active verb. To know someone is to be active and engaged with them. For example, the book of Genesis speaks of Adam knowing Eve and her then conceiving and bearing their son Cain. Further, when the Bible speaks of God foreknowing someone, it refers to him entering into a relationship with them, him choosing them or determining them before they did anything in and of themselves. This is clearly seen in the book of Deuteronomy regarding God's relationship with Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. God's foreknowing us is his sovereign decision to set his particular distinguishing love upon us, his people. Now, this is simply an amazing truth that we are being told. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God knew you in eternity past. He decided to set his love upon you, knowing everything you would do, despite all your sins and trespasses, and despite your running away from him. He loved you. Moving on to the second marker then, Paul tells us that since God foreknew us, he also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The word predestined is most accurately described by scholars as decided upon before, meaning God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in eternity past before we chose him. Now, lest we get conceited and think that we must be special in and of ourselves, we should remember that he chose us to the praise of his glorious grace, which is to say that he chose us for his own glory, not of our doing, so that no one of us may boast. And the purpose for which God chose us is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, which is to say that the Holy Spirit is at work in us to both put to death our sinful nature and to grow our spiritual nature to align ever more to that of Christ's sinless nature, until the day when our bodies are resurrected and transformed to join the glory of Christ. This is another statement that should simply amaze us. 
how marvelous will it be when for all eternity we no longer struggle with anger and pain, when we no longer have to guard against lust, jealousy, and hatred, because God will have totally perfected our spiritual nature and redeemed our bodies into a reflection of his resurrected son, Jesus. I'd like to encourage you also to think about what this would mean for our world at large. No longer would our world be plagued with evils like murder, racism, and oppression. And even within our city, the sex trafficking capital of Canada, we would no longer see evils like young children being manipulated, taken from their homes, and, sexual, and sexually exploited. Then, even Toronto will be a perfect example of God's glory. And Paul tells us that we are not only being conformed into the image of Christ, but we are also brothers of Christ. We have a position in the very family of God for all time. I know there are many of us in this congregation who have relationships with our spouses, parents, siblings, or children that are not what we would desire. Relationships that seem irreconcilable. The great news of this passage is that in the eternal family of God, there is no strife. No one, not even you, will bring grief or discord into your relationship with God or with the saints. We will have perfect relationship with our Creator, our true Father, as brothers and sisters of Christ, who is our perfect older brother. In essence, then, summarizing the first two markers in verse 29, Paul is saying that those people God put his love upon he also chose in eternity past to transform into a reflection of the perfect nature and body of the resurrected Christ. These very same people God also invited into his holy family forever. Now many people believe that our human choice to accept Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross is a condition that must be met before God will grant us his spirit and begin his salvific work in our lives. I've often heard the analogy that the, spirit, the spiritual condition of humanity is that of people drowning in the sea. God sees us drowning and throws each and every one of us a ring boy that we must first grab onto before he can haul us to safety. I think this view both minimizes the offense of sin before God and also overlooks the biblical view of our sinful nature, specifically that with, without God we are dead in trespasses and sins children of wrath. Further, if this is the case, why is it that you chose to be saved? Why did you grab the ring boy, as it were, while many you know have not? Is it because you were more spiritually sensitive or had a more open mindset? How then do you reconcile with scripture when it says that we are saved not of our own doing? If it was because you were more exposed to the gospel, then why doesn't God provide the same degree of revelation to everyone? Is he unable? No. He achieves all that he determines to do. We are not drowning. We are dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. And as such, we are unable to make a choice for God before he first works in us. He chose the believer and grants them faith to believe. This then seemingly brings to question why God would only choose some while leaving the rest of humanity doomed to face his wrath. I would respond to this question with another analogy, one that I think is a little more rooted in scripture. Rather than viewing humanity as drowning in the ocean, I put it to you that our condition is that of enemies of God, 
who have invaded his house and killed all his servants. We have set fire to the building and have died, trapped by the flames. The question is not why God hasn't saved all of us, but why he chose to send his son into the house to die, to save any of us at all. In verse 30, Paul continues his chain and gets to his third marker, saying that those whom God foreknew, those whom he predestined, he also called. God's call is essentially him applying his predestination in history. His call is the means and the timing by which he brings us to salvation. Practically, this call is carried out by the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And the word of Christ is this, that all have sinned. Each one of us has disobeyed and defended God, and we do not meet his holy standard of righteousness. God in his, justice, in his justice has decreed that the punishment for our disobedience is death and eternity in hell, separated from his gracious presence. But the good news is that God the Father sent his only begotten son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to live a perfectly righteous life, to die as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, bearing the wrath we were due upon himself on the cross to redeem a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to those who repent of their sins, those who confess Christ as Lord and trust in him for their salvation, God gives the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts of his chosen people to sanctify them and, to, and form them into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit is a sign and a seal for believers of their saving relationship with God. What good news this is. And the word of Christ is not simply something that is to be delivered by the preacher on Sunday morning. The word of Christ, the gospel, is to be preached by all of us, in our homes, to our neighbors, and to our friends, and always by faith, trusting that it is God who will make it effective, even if it takes years or decades. Moving on to Paul's fourth marker, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. Now our justification is more than just God forgiving our sins, and it is more than him accepting us, although at least it is both of those things. Our justification is our being declared righteous by God because of what he did for us. I think we have a tendency to overlook how amazing this is. I would encourage you to think on this, that the perfect, holy, all-powerful God looks at believers and sees not broken and flawed human beings, but he sees the righteousness of his Son. He does not see disobedient enemies, but he sees in us his perfectly obedient Son who gave himself for us. Notice now how those whom God called, he also justified, meaning everyone who received God's call is also justified in Christ. This speaks to what philosophers call, and what I already mentioned, as the effectual call of God. There is a sense in which God gives a general call to all men to repent, and indeed we are told that even the very world itself testifies to the glory of God, so that all are without excuse. But his effectual call leads to the salvation 
of only those whom God has chosen. Jesus himself described this in the Gospel of Matthew, where he compared the kingdom of God to a wedding feast and said, many are called, but few are chosen. It is also described in Acts 16. An accusation that is commonly leveled against God in response to this doctrine is that if he only makes his call effectual to his chosen people, then everyone else is not really responsible for their actions, for their unbelief. I do not believe, however, that this is a position that is grounded in Scripture. The Bible is rife with texts that state both that all are responsible for their unbelief and that God must enable men to come to him. In the span of just two chapters in the Gospel of John, Jesus says both, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and also, you refuse to come to me to have life. Far from being a paradox, this is called an antinomy, which is to say it is an apparent contradiction within our knowledge system, within our reason itself. But it is not a contradiction in God's knowledge, not in his reason. We are limited creatures who may not be able to reconcile these two seemingly incompatible truths, but we must remember that we are the ones who are made in his image, and his reasoning is far above our own. Now, the reason I stress this effectual call is that Christ is not a weak savior. He does not fail at saving the people he wants to redeem. Christ is a powerful savior who achieved everything he set out to do on the cross. Paul concludes his chain and hits his fifth and final marker, saying that those whom, love, whom God justified, he also glorified. Now, those of you who are paying attention will have noticed that the verb glorified is in the past tense, as have been all the other verbs in this chain. From our perspective here in 2018, God's foreknowing us, predestining us, calling us, and justifying us have all occurred in the past. But we certainly don't feel as though we've already been glorified. Why then does Paul continue to use the past tense? I put it to you that he is speaking from God's perspective, that God has already decreed the glory of those whom he justified. In his sight, which is all that really matters, the issue has been settled. The, this concept of glorification is intimately tied into God's conforming every believer into the image of Christ, as was stated in verse 29. At the last trumpet, when Jesus comes again, all believers will undergo, undergo a fundamental, instant transformation. The glory of God, his honor, praise, majesty, and holiness will be realized in us. Our mortal flesh will put on immortality, and we will see God face to face. We will, we will dwell with God, and he will wipe away every tear. There will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for these things will have passed away. So, circling back around to my three-point structure, the reason why we know with certainty that God is working all things for the good of believers is that he is sovereign over the most significant the grandest, and the most amazing miracle in our lives, our salvation. He powerfully brought about the, salva the salvation of rebellious sinners like us without our own effort or works by his foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and justification. 
How then could we think that he will not also be faithful to work all the circumstances of life, both joyful and sad, to bring about our glorification in his Son, Jesus Christ? Having now sufficiently, I think, addressed why we have knowledge and confidence that God is working all things for our good, I'd like to move back to point number one. I'd like to take a deeper look at some of the nuances of what it is that Paul claims that we know. What exactly does Paul mean when he says that all things work together for good for those who love God? Since Paul has already stated that we should expect to endure suffering, which we would not uh, define as being of our immediate good, we must instead define good in God's terms. We must recognize that goodness is not something that God arbitrarily chose to define, but rather goodness is rooted in the very nature of God. In the beginning, in the creation narrative described in Genesis, before Adam sinned and man fell, God created everything for his glory, and all of it was very good. So goodness is when everything is as it should be, in perfect harmony, as God originally created things beautifully reflecting his glory. Therefore, it is good when God shows us kindness and generosity, because these things are reflections of God's attributes as displayed in his perfect creation. And likewise, it is good when we suffer, because through our suffering, the Holy Spirit creates in us a stronger faith and a more certain hope. That God will redeem all things to be even better than they were before the fall. Paul testifies to this earlier in Romans. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This then brings me to my third and final point this morning, which is how we are to live in the knowledge that God is working all things for our good. I could simply say that since you've heard me say it, and you've read it in the text, you can just put it on the back burner of your mind and carry on with your daily life with that knowledge. But I think the the Apostle Paul expects more from us. He wants us to really plumb the depths of the truths he outlines here. He wants us to dwell upon the wonder of God's sovereign work of salvation in our lives. He poses five rhetorical questions, five great truths for us to think on. First, if God is for us, who can be against us? Second, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Third, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Fourth, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And fifth, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These aren't trick questions. We know the answers to these questions. Since God is for us, no one can be against us. When your co-workers are about to undermine you or your students are unruly, when your children grieve you or your relative says a cutting remark, 
Remember that the all-powerful creator of the universe is for you and is working that very situation for your good. Since God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, he will also graciously give us all that we need or ask in accordance with his will. When you're struggling with sickness and have, or have lost a loved one, God will not only provide the strength for you to carry on, but he will use that trial to grow your faith in him as you learn to rely on him more and more. Since it is God who justifies, no one can bring any charge against us. When the world around you accuses you of hatred, bigotry, or intolerance because of your faith, know that despite once standing guilty before God, now, because of Christ, we stand justified, and it is the world that stands judged by God. Fourth, since Christ is interceding for us, no one can condemn us. When you've yet again given in to sin, be it anger towards your spouse, pornography, addiction, jealousy of your friend or neighbor's success, remember that Christ, who bore the punishment for your sin, stands in your defense before the wrath of God. And finally, since he sovereignly placed his love upon us before the foundation of the world, nothing shall separate us from his love. In all your daily struggles, when you feel abandoned and unloved, Remember that God loves you and has chosen to raise you up with Christ in glory when he returns. For those of you sitting here today who cannot answer these questions in this way, who do not know this amazing truth deep down in your bones, the command of scripture is that you place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for your justification before God, for the eternal inheritance that is found in Christ Jesus. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look forward into a new year, I would encourage you to dwell on the knowledge that God is at work in all things for our good. When times are good, think on these truths. Think on his sovereign work of salvation and look forward to glorification with Jesus. When times are dark and circumstances seem hopeless, think on these truths. Think on his sovereign work of salvation and look forward to glorification with Jesus. And echo with Spafford and the saints throughout the ages these words. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul.